We're down to eight more classes plus the final. So getting down to the end really, really quick. We've got three, this, three classes this week, two next week, and then three the following week before the final exam the week after that. So coming up very, very close to the end right now. So start to see a bunch more as we finish up the last of the assignments here. Uh, today there's just two quizzes that are due. The third iTunes quiz and quiz number six are both due today, meaning by six o'clock tomorrow morning, make sure you get those done. Uh, for Wednesday, if you're doing the extra credit questions that I gave you for the last, that I let you do for the last exam, you can make up one uh, question for each of the three chapters on the coming exam. Uh, again, multiple choice, true, false, however you want to make it, give me a question, give me an answer, uh, give me a reference to the textbook or the site where you found some information on that then I will give you a couple points for each of those up to, it's up to six points. That's due on Wednesday as well as the third article review due, due on Wednesday. And then on Friday, homework seven. And then next Monday, a week from today, will be the fourth exam covering chapters 13, 14, and 15. And we should be done with 15 probably on Wednesday. We'll probably get through part, most of it today and then we'll finish the last bit of it on Wednesday. So we'll be well through that. Hopefully we'll actually be through chapter 16 by the end of this week. That leaves us chapter 17, which is a long one uh, that we want to get through. And then chapter 18, which is relatively short. I can get through most of that, the most important concepts at least that we need in a one lecture, probably the last day of class. So that's what's coming up. And then a few more things coming up. There's a few more extra credit assignments that'll be due. Uh, right after Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving there. Questions on anything up there? All right, otherwise picture of the day for today. Uh, the double dust disks of HD95086. So what is HD95086? Well, that's the catalog name for this star. It's the Henry Draper catalog after an astronomer who started cataloging stars uh, over, well, over 100 years ago. And it was just star number 95,086 in his catalog. But what we're finding now with making infrared observations of it, first of all, it makes it clear that's an artist's conception. That's not what we're actually seeing. But we are seeing that this star actually has two disks around it, two disks of dust. Instead of just a single one, single disk, we've seen that for some of the other stars. But around here we see a little inner hot disk of dust around the inner part close to the star. And further out, we see a much cooler disk of dust. So what we're thinking we're seeing here is planetary formation going on. That planets have formed, and there's still some dust left very close to the star. The denser materials, the rocky and metallic materials still in very close. Maybe there's some formation of planets going on still in there. And then further out, possibly, this has been cleared out because some of the larger planets have begun to form. Things like Jovian planets, which is why they're drawn as Saturns with all the, with the rings. Whether they'd actually have rings is a good question. Whether they'd actually be, how many planets there'd be in their spacing is something we don't know. But the fact that this has been cleared out, that there's almost no dust in here, gives us pretty good, a pretty good clue that something must be going on in there that's clearing out all that dust. And those planets would be something that could do that. Their gravity could gather up the dust, helping them grow in size. Their gravity can also change the orbits of those dust particles and fling them out of that area. They can clean out, essentially clean out this whole area. That's what happened in our solar system. 
we had lots of dust and little particles there. Over billions of years, it slowly got cleaned out by the planets, and there's not a whole lot left as compared to what there was a long time ago. Here we're looking at a stage very, very early on in the formation of a star and the formation of a planetary system. So we're looking at what our solar system might have looked like, you know, four billion years ago or so, very early on in its, in its formation. So artist conception there, but the actual science behind it is something that we have detected. We've detected not just a single dust disk around this, but our technology is getting better that we're actually able to see that not just that one, this big one around, but we're also seeing a littler one around here as well. So, questions? No? Otherwise we'll head from solar systems back out to galaxies, which is what we were working on. Uh, let's see, we were right here, I think I just brought up this one and then said I'll come back to that next time. So we were right on here on Hubble's Law. Mentioned Hubble a couple times. I talked about Hubble in terms of uh, detecting Cepheid variables in Andromeda Galaxy and determining that it's actually a galaxy. Uh, we've talked about the Hubble Space Telescope and many of its observations, um, which was named after Edwin Hubble. And here we're looking at Hubble's Law. What he did was he was measuring a lot of galaxies and finding out that their spectral lines were always shifted. So here he found this set of spectral lines in the, gal in the galaxy. And in this galaxy, which was relatively close to us, they were shifted a little bit, but pretty close to where they'd normally be if the galaxy were not moving. A galaxy a little bit further away, they were shifted a little bit further, even further away, shifted more, shifted more. Here in this very distant galaxy, almost looking like a point out there, they were shifted quite a bit. Shifted well across the spectrum. So what he's finding is that there's a relationship between the distance of the galaxy and how much their lines are shift, how fast these galaxies are moving away from us. So what we're finding is that with a very few exceptions, Andromeda Galaxy, one of the nearest being a major exception, that it's actually moving closer to our galaxy, everything else is moving further away. This was the discovery of the expansion of the universe, the idea that the universe is expanding. Everything is getting further away from everything else in the galaxy. It's not us. Everything's not moving away from us. It's the universe as a whole that is expanding. And we'll look at this a little bit uh, more when we get to chapter 17. We'll look at it in a little bit idea of expansion and what's going on there in a little bit more detail. But what Hubble found was that there is a relationship between these. And good thing for us, there's a relationship now between something we can measure relatively easy, the Doppler shift of these lines, how far they are shifted from, you know, where would they be at rest? Over here someplace perhaps. They're shifted, that tells us the distance. They're shifted this much. We can now determine distances. It's another method of getting distances. Yes, sir? I was going to say that was the theory of, I think, general relativity. How do we know that they're moving away and we're just not moving away from that? It's the whole thing is moving. So it's not they're moving away from us. It's not like we're anything special and they're all ex running away from us. If you were in one of those other galaxies, you'd see exactly the same thing. Every other galaxy would be moving away from you. It's just the whole idea is the whole universe is expanding. Uh, the typical example given is you know, a balloon expanding. Take a balloon, draw a whole bunch of dots on it, pick one. If you blow up the balloon, it doesn't matter which dot you picked, 
Every other dot has gotten further away from it. That's sort of what's happening here. The whole universe is expanding, so we're getting further, all these galaxies are getting further away from us. But if you were in this galaxy, you know, you wouldn't find, oh, these ones are getting closer and these ones are getting further away. Everything's getting further away from you. It doesn't matter where you are in the universe. But for right now, we're looking at it just as a distance. In chapter 17, we come back and look at it a little bit more in terms of the Big Bang and things like that. So what do we see when we look at these? Well, for some relatively nearby galaxies, we're only talking about a billion parsecs, a couple uh, billion light years. So still that nearby area. If we measure the velocity, that's very easy to get. All we have to do is find a galaxy, take a spectrum of it, as long as we can get enough light to find the spectral lines and figure out how much they're shifted, we can get a velocity doesn't require anything else other than enough light. And the nice thing is now, instead of looking at just stars, we're looking at galaxies. Galaxies are going to be a lot brighter because they're made up of many billions of stars. So instead of looking for just a single really bright star as we were in some of the others, even a supernova, we have galaxies here that are much, much brighter. And we find that there's not perfect, but pretty good relationship between how far away they are, which had to be measured by one of those other methods we've used so far, so we used, the, used Cepheids, used uh, supernovae to measure their distances and there seems to be a pretty good relationship between that and how far away they are. Again, more here, add a few more plots. The first one is just for those few that I showed on the previous slide. This is for the rest of them. So there's a pretty good relationship, meaning that now if we go find another galaxy, c can we assume that this keeps going? It's a good question. We have to, for right now, that's all we can do. We can say that this goes up and it keeps going. It's a nice, nice line going up here. So now we find a galaxy that's receding even faster. We can measure its distance. We have another way to determine distances as long as we can actually detect the galaxy. As long as we can see the galaxy and measure its, have enough light to be able to measure its spectral lines. So, here's the equation for it. There is a relationship between these that we, the, the recessional velocity, um, I'm going to write it like that with the V with a little R under it, just the velocity for recession, how far, how fast it's moving away from us, is equal to Hubble's constant. It's given by H for Hubble with a little zero under it, times the distance. Hubble's constant, once we determine what it is, is just some number. Right now we think that Hubble's constant, which tells us how fast things are moving, is about 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Strange set of units there. It depends on distance and velocity. And what it really means is that for every million parsecs you go away, a galaxy is receding from us at 70 kilometers per second. So at one megaparsec, it's moving at 70 kilometers per second. At 2 megaparsecs, it would be moving at 140. 3, 210 kilometers per second. And so on outward to the edge of the universe. Now this number is still in question. It's not, it's around 70, but we don't have an exact value. It's something very difficult to get because it still depends on determining accurate distances to all of these galaxies. So we have to be able to determine accurate distances and as I've told you from some of the others, distances are very hard to get. 
the value ranges, typically it's getting a lot closer. There are still some measurements. 70 is pretty good now. But you know, could it be 60 or could it be 80 or could it be 50 or could it be 90? There's still that much uncertainty in it. It's not like it's 70, but it might be 70.2 or 70. There's still a significant uncertainty in it. That's a lot better than it used to be just a few decades ago. A couple of decades ago, there was a big debate as to whether Hubble's constant was closer to about 50 or 150. That's a big difference. You know, 50 to 100, that's three times the size. And that made a big difference in terms of distances, in terms of calculating distances. How accurately we know this is going to really have an effect on how well we can measure distances because this is our last distance determination method. This is the last way we're going to have to determine distances. This works out to the edge of the universe. As far as you can see anything, you, as long as you can see that object, it actually works. And it actually works better the further away an object is. Why is that? Well, because a nearby object might be moving close. It, when you have galaxies in a cluster, you've got a cluster of little galaxies here someplace. They're all moving around in that cluster as well as everything expanding away from us. Some of them might be moving this way, that way. There are some motions within the cluster. So they all have their own motions within the cluster. Just as our planets orbit around the sun, they're orbiting around some central portion of the galaxy, of the cl galaxy cluster. And those velocities, if you're real close, that velocity can be larger than the expansion velocity. So this velocity might be, say you're real close, say you're within a million parsecs and these velocities are 100 or 150 kilometers per second. They then overwhelm the expansion. Because you're real close, the expansion isn't very much. It's a small amount. It might only be 70 kilometers per second that the universe is expanding. But if this is coming towards you at 150 kilometers per second, you add the two, right? 70 this way, 150 this way, all of a sudden it's coming towards you. If you get further away, if you go 10 times as far away and you go out to 10 megaparsecs, then the velocity of the expansion would be 700 kilometers per second. 700 kilometers per second for expansion, maybe it's still coming towards you at 150. Now it's not as big of a deal. Still, 700 to 150, it's making, an, it's making an impact in your measurements, but not as much. If you go out 10 times further, now the recession is going to be 7,000 kilometers per second. The velocities within the cluster haven't changed, so now it's 7,000 in expansion, 150 in internal motions, Th those internal motions don't matter much. They're very important when you're close because the expansion isn't very big. When you get further away, they don't matter near as much. So the further out you get, the more accurate Hubble's law actually becomes. When you're real close, then Hubble's law is not very accurate. You wouldn't want to use Hubble's law to determine the distance to the Andromeda galaxy. Its motions and its gravitational force between us and it and all the other galaxies vastly overwhelm the little tiny bit of expansion that would be between our, gal between our galaxies. All right, question. Yes, sir? You said that there's galaxies coming towards us. There are, ga there is, there are a couple galaxies that are coming towards us. Andromeda is on a collision course with us for a couple billion years from now. 
So, so is there an idea that will merge with it? Or? Probably they'll eventually merge together, yeah. They will actually combine together forming a bigger galaxy. So come back in five billion years or so, I mean you'll have Andromeda looming in the sky instead of this little tiny speck, it'll be a giant thing stretching across the sky. The collision isn't really a bad thing, it's not a car collision, right? Smash! Everything crashes together with the galaxy, it's more like whoosh! They go right through each other because they're almost all empty space. Could so they just change what type of galaxy we are? It probably could, yeah. Gravitationally they, they, in, they interact, so stars will go flying around and orbits will change. But in terms of you don't collide anything together, you're colliding things that are pretty much empty space. But yes, it could change the type of galaxy. Could it increase the amount of star formation? We've got lots of gas, they've got lots of gas. You combine them together, all of a sudden lots and lots of stars will be forming. Again, that collision will happen in a few billion years. It will take hundreds of millions of years for them to collide. So again, we say collision, we think two cars crashing together, boom, it's done. Well here, they're, you know, it's, the distances are so large that it's, they take time and they slowly pass through each other and the stars are... But it's a very slow process. You're not going to sit there and watch it. You're only going to get to see a little snapshot of it when we look at any other galaxy. Good. Alrighty. So what do we see? Well, here's our distance ladder one more time. Uh, I've been looking at this, started off way at the beginning and then we've hit it quite a bit recently as we've added some more steps to it. Really, looking real close to us, you can use uh, radar, means we send out a signal, bounce it off Mars, and we can measure the distance to Mars. That works about within the inner part of the solar system. So that doesn't work very far out to determine distances. We can't bounce the light off of anything, uh, anything further away. Plus it takes a long time. Even if we wanted to have a strong enough signal to send out to Alpha Centauri and bounce off something there, takes it 4.3 years to get there, 4.3 years to get back. So you've got, you're waiting over eight and a half years just to get a response to that signal. So not very useful outside of really the local part of the solar system. Parallax was our first one we talked about way back. That works out to about 200 parsecs, six, 700 light years as a direct method of determining the distance. Didn't depend on anything else, we were able to get the distances directly. We talked about the HR diagram, we added in spectroscopic parallax jumping our distance out to covering a big chunk of the galaxy. So determine the spectral class of a star and use that to determine its brightness, how bright it really should be. Gave us a, us a measure distances well within our galaxy. Further out we added things like variable stars, the Aurelires and the Cepheids, helped us to really measure distances to globular clusters and some of the nearest galaxies. 25 million parsecs, about 75 million light years still in our own backyard but helps us with some of those, the Andromeda galaxy which is only a couple million light years away and other galaxies like that. Uh, the Tully-Fisher relation looked at a spiral galaxy and how it rotates. Faster it rotates was dependent on its brightness, was related to its brightness. So we could measure its rotation, we could use that to determine its brightness. Those got us out to millions or hundreds of, hundreds of millions of parsecs. Uh, six, seven hundred million light years. The biggest one was the supernovae, type 1 supernovae, some of the brightest objects that occur. And that would occur, we could see those out to a billion parsecs, three billion light years. Again, we're still not three billion light years size of the galaxy. You're looking at that inner quarter of the galaxy. You're missing a whole bunch of it. 
if you're doing that. Um, that would be, let's see, yeah, that would be missing a whole, you're missing a whole bunch, you're just looking at that inner quarter of the galaxy, that little tiny sphere inside this much bigger sphere, which is all the other material. So that gets us out, but it still gets us out quite a ways. And then Hubble's law is the top of our distance ladder. That allows us to use anything beyond about 100 million parsecs. Get this velocity up enough so that the expansion overwhelms any individual motions of the galaxies. Doesn't matter what those galaxies are doing. We already talked about distances, right? Didn't matter that the stars were all at different distances in a cluster. They're all the same distance from us. Same thing here. Now that we've got a big enough velocity, yeah, those stars, those galaxies in the cluster are all moving in different directions. Some of them are moving towards us. Some are moving away. But if we're far enough away from that, the distance, the expansion actually is overwhelming that and will just be essentially the expansion. The little bit of variation in here will not be noticed. So that gets us out. Now we have ways to determine distances essentially out to the edge of the universe. Now, the last part of this chapter is on not normal galaxies, but active galaxies. Active galaxies are not that rare by comparison. They're actually about 20-25% of all the galaxies. But they don't really fit into Hubble's classification that we looked at. So Hubble had that tuning fork diagram trying to classify the galaxies. But these are all galaxies that are too bright. They're a lot brighter than they should be. And we consider them active galaxies. They differ from a normal galaxy in a couple ways. First of all, they're significantly brighter. So that's what we're looking at here. They're brighter. This is the intensity. How bright are they? And we're looking at it versus wavelength. So if we look in the radio waves, they're brighter than a normal galaxy. If we look at them in visible light, they're brighter than a normal galaxy. If we look at them in x-rays, they're brighter than a normal galaxy. So it doesn't matter where you look, they're always brighter, whatever part of the spectrum. They're emitting a lot more energy. So it's in terms of, first of all, how much radiation they're emitting and the type of radiation. This, if you remember way, way back to chapter, what chapter was it for this class? Early on, chapter three or four, four or something, three or something, when we looked at the spectra. That's really a black body spectrum. That looks like the spectrum we talked about of a star. They emit very little radio waves, peak up towards the visible and then drop down. A normal galaxy is really just adding up all the light from all the individual stars. So it gives the same type of spectrum of a star. It's what they call stellar radiation. It's radiation from stars. Whereas an active galaxy is completely different. It emits lots of radio waves, lots more. Really a lot more x-rays. It's putting a lot more energy out in these other parts of the spectrum. And it doesn't look like just a bunch of stars. Just a bunch of stars, if you add them all to up, you're going to get some curve like this where it goes really down in the radio and really drops even faster on the X-ray and gamma ray side. Whereas an active galaxy is emitting all those types of radiation. So something else is happening in this active galaxy to give it a different type of radiation that's showing compared to a normal galaxy like the ones we've been talking about uh, for, the last, for the first part of chapter 15 here. All right. So what we call these is I said we had stellar radiation. That's for a normal galaxy. The others emit what we call a non-stellar. 
non-stellar radiation, that would be what an active galaxy is emitting. Non-stellar radiation simply means that it's produced by something other than stars. So it's not being just produced by stars. There's something else involved in this galaxy that is causing it to produce lots of radiation that isn't just due to the stars and actually dominates the amount of radiation coming from them. Many of them are experiencing star formation bursts. Means we talked about the Andromeda colliding with our galaxy, right? They collide together. They'll pass through each other, but the gas clouds won't. The gas clouds will compress together. So when galaxies collide, when they interact with each other, that can trigger excess star formation. There's always star formation going on in our galaxy, but if you collide two galaxies together, you're going to use up a lot more of that gas and dust all at once and form lots of stars all at at the same time. Uh, These are what we call starburst galaxies. So starburst galaxies, meaning that they're having a burst of star formation. They're a little bit different than what I want to talk about in this chapter. So we, we know the reason for them. We know what's going on here. You've got two galaxies colliding together. Gas clouds are colliding into each other, compressing and triggering more star formation as we talked about a few chapters back. So it's the same kind of thing here with these. We're just having lots and lots of star formation. So that, that includes a lot, of, a lot of galaxies. The ones we want to look at here for this chapter are we're, we're looking something going on in the center of the galaxy. So what is happening deep down in the center of the galaxy that is causing excess radiation to be emitted. And we're going to come back to a massive black hole. We already talked about the one at the center of our galaxy. Maybe three and a half to four million times the mass of our sun. Some of these active galaxies are the ones that are where the, where the black hole is either more mass, even more massive perhaps, and is actually actively being fed. Material is going into that galactic center, going into that black hole, swirling around it, and giving off lots and lots of energy. So the more active that center of the galaxy is, that means that it's more active, we're getting more energy from it, not just visible light, but we're getting more radio waves, getting more x-rays, gamma rays, all across the spectrum. We're getting all sorts of radiation from it. So that's what we see with these, with these active galaxies, they're emitting a different type of radiation. They're a lot brighter. Uh, we talk, we'll talk about a couple different kinds coming up here. There's a couple different types of active galaxies. I've mentioned one here is the starburst galaxies, which really are pretty much a normal galaxy except for the intense starburst that's going on. They're pretty much a normal galaxy otherwise. All right, let me see. So looking at the different types, the first type I want to look at is a Seifert galaxy. Is one type of active galaxy. There's a Seifert galaxy. We'll look at radio galaxies. And we'll look at quasars. There's three different types of active galaxies that we have. Starbursts were one type, but these are the ones where something is happening down in the core. The Seifert galaxy, if you look at it, looks kind of like a spiral galaxy, but when you compare it, if you were to compare it side by side with a regular galaxy, the central core is many times brighter. Not just two times or three or five, but 
thousands of times brighter. So there is a lot of energy coming from this core that we don't see in a typical galaxy. The likelihood is that something, either it's in the process of swallowing material, maybe there was a collision that allowed more material into the central section of this galaxy and allowing that material to swirl around the black hole, around the black hole swirls around higher and higher speeds, heats up to incredibly high temperatures, millions, tens of millions of degrees, and gives off lots of radiation. But the key to them is that we see that this is a lot brighter than it otherwise would be. If that were a normal galaxy, like the ones we looked at last time, we would see a big difference in how bright this is. We see it a lot brighter in a Seifert galaxy. But other than that, they look pretty much like a normal spiral galaxy. Meaning that could any spiral galaxy become a Seifert galaxy? If you start giving some energy source to it, if you start giving some food, start feeding that black hole, allowing it to convert energy, uh, convert mass into energy, could you turn a regular galaxy into a Seifert galaxy? And you probably could. All you need to do is give it some source of material to be added to that black hole. So Seifert galaxies are one example of these. They also vary quickly. Their time frames of variation is very small. This is an example of one looked at for what about 30, 30 years here from 1970 to 2000. They vary quite a bit in brightness. When we look at them, they'll go here, you know, whatever they are, we're going from 10 almost up to 15, down here to like 2. So we're going a factor of 7 or so, 7 or 8 in terms of brightness. So their brightness varies quite a bit. Not just a little bit brighter, a little bit fainter, but significantly brighter and fainter. And it varies in relatively small times. You can go up and you can go down and you can go up and down again very quickly, you know, less than a year. What that tells us is that an object cannot possibly vary in brightness coherently like this faster than it takes light to travel across its size. Okay, if it's a light year across, one side gets brighter, the whole thing gets brighter, we see this side get brighter a year later, we see this side get brighter. Any smaller variations get smoothed out because it takes light a year to travel across of it. So we can't see any little tiny changes, everything's going to be smeared out. If it were 10 light years across, we see this one today get brighter. This one doesn't get brighter for 10 years, so that brightness is stretched out. When we start seeing brightnesses change in a much smaller time scale over the period of, in this case, uh, you know, looking at months, some of them we look down to weeks or days, we're talking about things that are solar system sized. If you've got something that's varying only you know, with, the, with, the, with the distance light travels in a day, that's not that much bigger than our entire solar system when you get out there. So these things are incredibly compact. And we are seeing objects, this one not showing so much that, that size, but the faster we see it vary and actually get so much brighter and then get fainter again, tells us that it has to be an extremely compact source. And if we're talking about something with lots of mass and not very much space, very compact, the only thing that will work for that is a black hole. The only object that we know where we can stick millions of solar masses into the solar system is a black hole. You know, how else are you going to get millions of solar masses? You know, neutron stars sitting right next to each other. 
Well, eventually they're going to coalesce. Real quickly, they're going to coalesce together and form a black hole. So, you know, how else can you get that much material compacted that close? And the variations is something that tells us that. Now, the second type is a radio galaxy. As you might, admit, might expect, radio galaxies emit lots of radio radiation. So they were detected in the radio part of the spectrum. This is one example here. This is uh, Centaurus A. This is an unusual galaxy. We looked at elliptical galaxies. We looked at spiral galaxies. This is a cross between the two. Okay? There's a big elliptical galaxy. If we ignore the big dust lane going through it, you've got a big elliptical galaxy there. And you've got a big dust lane going through it. Well, it can't be an elliptical galaxy because elliptical galaxies don't have dust. Right? They have very little gas and dust. It can't be a spiral galaxy because spiral galaxies are very flattened and this one is much, much wider. What we think in this case, this is another example of possibly a colliding set of galaxies. That you have an elliptical galaxy and a spiral galaxy colliding together. So that's where you're seeing the combination. When we look at them, that upper left is what we see when we look at the optical. So if we take a picture with a regular telescope, that's what we're going to see. If we take a picture with the radio telescope, ignore the fact that they're superimposed here, we don't see the galaxy itself here. What we see is a big jet of material this way and a big jet of material coming out of this way out of some central portion there. So we get, in this case, the radio galaxies have lobes of material. They send material spiraling out into space from some central portion of, the, of that galaxy. Again, we're always coming back down to the black hole at the center. What is causing this tremendous amount of energy? Well, if there's a black hole at the center, it can spew material out. Not, again, not from the black hole, but that disk around it. One, as long as you're outside the event horizon of the black hole, material can escape. And you're heating things up to incredibly high temperatures around that black hole as they're spiraling in. So material can escape then you imagine a disk around the black hole going around with the plane of this galaxy here, it can shoot material out perpendicular to that. And that's what we see here. That's what we see with these is that's where the material is, is being spewed out of this, uh, from around this black hole. But you can see also that it looks quite different. If we look at this just in the radio, just here in the color, the red and blue and yellow and green colors, you see just those lobes. If you look at it just in the visible, all you see is this. Those lobes are not emitting visible light at all, so they're invisible to us. There's something going on. Now as we zoom in and we look in in x-rays, very deep in, we can actually see part. There's very bright area at the center, and we can actually see the beginnings of the jet of material that's being thrown out away from that central portion. The black hole, we're still not seeing the black hole. The black hole is still embedded deep within that bright spot. That's the disk around it emitting lots of x-rays. But we're seeing the jet actually coming out of these. And we see, see jets, we saw some in stars. We see lots and lots of them in these active galaxies. It all has to do with that very intense black hole, a very large black hole at the center creating a lot of energy. Now, radio galaxies, lots of them show these jets, but not all of them. You also see some. In this case, instead of using uh, false color, it's contour lines. This is again a visible and radio image. In this case, you find a radio galaxy, but instead of seeing jets coming from it, you just see that it's really emitting a lot of radio waves. 
So it's not just necessarily the jets here. Is there a little bit of material from there? Perhaps. But not near as clear as it was in the last image. So there are two types of radial galaxies. They can be dominated by the lobes as we looked at in the first one and the jets or they can be dominated by the core, just emitting a lot of energy from the core. We don't think these are really two different types of galaxies. We think these are both the same and it's all a matter of how you're looking at the galaxy. What perspective do we happen to have? Astronomy, we can't change our perspective. We talked about pulsars. If we're in the right spot, the pulsar beam passes us, we see it. If we were off, you know, if the light year in one direction, we would never see that pulsar. Right? Its beam would pass above or below us and we'd never see it. Radio galaxies may be the same way. How are you looking at it? Well, in the first case, you may be looking at it this direction. So there's the galaxy and it's sending material out perpendicular to your line of sight. So you're looking at it this way. Some material's going out this way, some's going out that way. You see those big radio lobes around the galaxy. On the other hand, if you're looking from this direction, looking straight down it, you're not going to see those lobes because everything is bunched together. So you're looking here, all you're seeing is an intense radio galaxy, a lot of radio emission, but you can't actually see those lobes and those jets coming out. So that's what we think is going on with radio galaxies. There's two different types, but they're really just a matter of how you're seeing things, how you happen to be oriented. How would you test it? Well, the only way you could test this, really, uh, directly is to make that nice trip. One we see this way, let's travel hundreds of millions of light years or billions of light years and look at it from the other perspective and see if it matches up. So it's thought this is how things work. It's not something that we can very easily go and examine. Just like our galaxy, we've gotten pretty good ideas as to what our galaxy probably looks like, but we can't go make that trip, you know, millions of light years away to look back down on our galaxy to see what it actually looks like. Alrighty. I talked about the jets. This is from one of the active, this is one of the large galaxies. We talked about the Virgo cluster had what, 3,500 galaxies in it. This is the largest of them. Uh, this is the central galaxy of that cluster. Very gigantic elliptical galaxy. And when we zoom in here, to here, even looking into the infrared, again, we're looking down to the central source here. Buried in there, embedded in there would be the black hole. So black hole even to this scale would still be incredibly tiny, less than a pixel. And we're seeing again the material starting to come out from the disk around that black hole. So we see lots of these jets, lots of material coming from this, uh, from this interaction, from these interactions. A lot of these active galaxies also do show signs of collisions. They look like they either have collided in the past with another galaxy, they're in the process of colliding with another galaxy. Remember, it doesn't take two seconds to collide, it takes a long time. It takes many millions of years for the galaxies to actually collide together. So in terms of actually getting that black hole active, it seems that collisions are very important. So could our galaxy then become, you know, us and Andromeda as we collide, could we become active galaxies? And that's a good possibility. We can throw material into that black hole, start feeding it, it starts giving out a lot of energy, it could turn into an active galaxy, much like these other ones that we see.
a lot of it, a lot of uh, what happens with galaxies seems to be based on how they collide and coalesce together. Not just how they form in the first place, but how they go through their lives. But that's some examples of one of the jets there that we see. The last one, also having jets there, you see the jet from this object, this is a quasar. Uh, quasar is actually a quasi-stellar radio source, is how it got its name. Uh, see it says quasi-stellar object there, that's what they're really classified as now. Sometimes they're also called, instead of quasars, they, nowadays they can be called QSOs for quasi-stellar objects. That simply means that the first ones that were detected were radio sources. But now we've seen lots of others that don't necessarily emit lots of radio waves. So quasar is kind of the old term that has still stuck with them. What they mean, it's quasi-stellar. It means it looks like a star. So if you take a picture of this and look at, and look at it, it doesn't look all that different than a star. So here's an image of one. And I don't know if you can see, there's almost a line going through here and a line going through here. Ignore that there's a jet there, but you also get that little spike, that diffraction pattern that we looked at with stars. When you look at a star, it's a point of light in the sky. Our telescopes are not big enough, with a couple of exceptions, to see a star with actually any size to it. These are essentially points of light. So they're showing little diffraction patterns through them because of the telescope. Because all that light is coming from one point in the sky. So they look like stars, but they had really, really weird spectral lines. And in fact, it took a long time to be able to identify the spectral lines that we're seeing. Uh, some of these are relatively bright. You know, not something you're going to see with your naked eye when you go outside. But even some of them can be detected through a relatively small telescope. You know, six, eight, 10 inch, 10, 12 inch telescopes, you know, not the gigantic ones that astronomers use. Some of the brightest of these can actually be detected. But they had very unusual spectral lines and had a lot of trouble identifying them. Were they, some, were they some different element? Was there something different going on with them? What was going on with these? So they looked like a star, but they were emitting lots of radio waves, which stars don't. Normally stars don't emit a lot of radio waves. And they had unusual spectral lines. So here's what we were seeing. Here's a lab spectrum in the bottom. And we were seeing these lines way over here. What eventually was found is that those unusual lines that we were seeing were hydrogen. All they were were hydrogen lines, but we didn't identify them right away because they weren't where they were supposed to be. They were shifted drastically to the red. So there's this hydrogen line. It should have been here. Here's this hydrogen line. It should have been here. This hydrogen line should have been over here. They were shifted not just by a little bit, like the stars in our galaxy, stars moving around our galaxy, but shifted tremendously. So very, very high redshift. Okay, high redshift means they're moving away from us very quickly. So redshift moves means it's moving away from us. A larger redshift means it's moving away from us very quickly. Thinking back to Hubble's law, that's going to tell us that these things have to be very far away. Right? We know the redshift. We know that, that, that they're moving away from us. Hubble's law tells us there's a relationship between the redshift and the distance. So we could determine distances and find out that these are not stars, not something within our own galaxy, but something much, much further away. So that helps us. Okay, we identified what they are. They're, these, they're just very far, very far away. We found the hydrogen lines. That makes sense to us. Now we've got a big problem in that 
because we're putting these things so far away and they're so bright, they've got to be among the brightest objects in the universe. Sorry, that shouldn't be galaxy, that should be luminous objects in the universe. They're not within our galaxy, they're, without, they're outside of our galaxy. But in order to see these things at distances of many billions of light years, you know, a star, you know, sun wouldn't be visible if you take it a couple hundred light years away from us very easily. Um, even the brightest stars, if you take the millions of light years away, it gets hard to see them. These things are incredibly bright and are reasonably bright even at tremendous distances. And we see these back to, well, typically starting at about 10 billion light years are the closest ones. And other ones are 11, 12, 13 billion light years away. They have to be incredibly bright so that they don't just fade out with, as the light travels that long, long distance to reach us. So extremely bright objects. So now we need an energy source that will give us that will give us this very, very bright object. We need a nice, nice strong energy source. What do we keep coming back to? The black hole. A black hole at the center of this quasar. So probably a black hole at the Seifert, black hole at the radio galaxy, black hole at the quasar. We're looking at different stages of how energetic these objects are. Seifert galaxies, like a typical spiral, but much, much brighter. These are incredibly brighter, incredible amount brighter. Because the other galaxies, you know, our galaxy, if we took our Milky Way galaxy out to these distances, you wouldn't be able to see it. Even our galaxy would not be visible. So these things are emitting a tremendous amount of radiation. So what do we know about these? Well, we know that they're very bright, lots of luminosity. So they're emitting lots and lots of energy. Typically it's all non-stellar, meaning it's not just stars. If it was just stars, it would not be visible over these distances. There's some other source of energy that's coming out. The energy is variable, meaning they're just not some brightness. They change, they'll get brighter, they'll get fainter, and that will change significantly over time, sometimes over very short times. So when they change over very short times, that tells us how, what the size must be, and it must be incredibly small. So that nucleus where all the energy is being created must be incredibly tiny. We've looked at jets and other signs, sun signs of explosive activity, something that's going on that's propelling material out from the, from the center of the galaxy. We look at the lines. The lines are very broadened. We looked at that last time. I told you that with the Tully-Fisher relation and you had um, a galaxy rotating. It spread out the lines because you're looking at all the different parts. Some are moving faster than others and instead of getting a nice narrow spectral line, you got something that was broadened out quite a bit. The faster it's rotating, the wider that line gets. That tells us that material is moving very, very quickly when you get close to the center of that quasar. And these really apply to all of these. All of them have higher lum high luminosities. All of them have some signs of non-stellar emission. Maybe they have a stellar component as well, but they all have some kind of non-stellar emission. They're all variable. They all emit more energy and at some times and less energy at others. They all have, uh, not all, at every single one of them has a jet, but there's jets seen in all different types of them. Seaford galaxies can be seen with jets, so can radio galaxies, so can quasars. And they all have extremely rapid rotation, meaning that we're looking down to that central core. So, we put all this together and we come up with a model to try to explain what we see in these 
what, how we explain how we get this much energy from these galaxies. And that is using a black hole at the center. That there's a massive black hole, again, something the size of the black hole at the center of our galaxy, which is about three and a half to four million solar masses, maybe larger than that. Something to be able to explain that. And this is where, yeah, I'll stop. I'll show this one today and then I'll come back to it probably on Wednesday. But what we think happens is there's the black hole at the center. No energy gets out of there once you get inside the, inside the event horizon. But around it, there's a disk of material spiraling around very quickly, very fast out here and even faster and faster as it spirals in. And around the edges of that material can, as it gets in close, material can be beamed out. So that's where you get these jets of material where beams are coming out. That's where we see those jets coming out one direction, coming out in the other direction. And that can account for, all that energy accounted for is between the jets and the very heated material spiraling in to the black hole. So as you get very hot material spiraling into that black hole, that gives off a lot of energy. So I'll come back here on Wednesday and finish up. We're just about done with uh, the central engines of these and mostly done with chapter 15. So I'll finish this up on Wednesday and then we'll be able to start in on chapter, uh, chapter 16. Questions? Yes, sir. What would happen if a quasar were to land into a galaxy? If a quasar were to collide, collide with a galaxy, uh, you'd probably get a more energetic quasar, more energetic galaxy. They'd they're, be feeding those black holes. Yeah, so you'd be getting even more energetic. And in fact, quasars are probably due to collisions. We'll look at that again coming up in a little bit. Other questions? Have a good rest of the day. Don't forget two quizzes due by 6 o'clock tomorrow. And then if you're doing the extra credit questions, creating those for me. Or the article reviews, don't forget those. I need those in Wednesday. There is a Dropbox for extra credit assignments that I created on D2L if you need to submit anything on there.